Given we're coming to the end of 2012, uh, according to the Mayans, we're coming to the end of the world as we know yeah, it. Full stop. Yeah. yeah, well, as R.E.M. would say, it's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. Jeez. But uh, 12 seconds in, man, and you're already pulling that out? Come on. Well, at least try and ease the listeners into it before you <laughs> launch one of those god-awful jokes on them. But uh, with that in mind, we're, we're doing a bit of uh, bulls, bulls and bears, so to speak, looking at the 2012 season and working out people whose stocks have risen and whose stocks have fallen quite quite markedly. So uh, Share market style. Share market style, the only way to go. So if you were buying stock or selling stock, how you, when you were looking back at the performance of said stock during 2012, how you'd be feeling about it right about Would you now? be on your retirement yacht or would you be, yeah, yeah, giving hand jobs in back alleys to buy food for your family? I don't, I don't know. That, Jeez, that was and, you, well. and you're taking shots at <laughs> yeah. me. My God. Oh. oh. Yeah. Are you in the penthouse or the poorhouse is probably the easier way to say what you're trying oh. to say. But. See, now you're just making me look bad. Besides, it was all the pressure I was under to try and match your, your first joke. Yeah. Well, anyway, maybe we should just get on with the list. Yeah. Yeah. Quickly. So, all let's, right. Let's, I think let's start with the the stocks who have risen during 2012. And given that we did want to get into this quickly, yeah. Let's go with the fastest man in the world, Usain Bolt. Usain in the membrane. The lightning bolt. The lightning bolt. <laughs> Usain in the membrane, yes. Yes. Well, lightning definitely did strike twice this year. After yeah. a bit of a disrupted um, build-up as well, he had been beaten um, by his main Jamaican rival, whose name now completely... Uh, Blake, wasn't it? Blake? Yeah. Johan Blake, yep. yeah. Yeah. He was beaten by his main rival, Johan Blake, um, in both the 100 and the 200 before before the Olympics. Um and for the first time ever, I think there was some doubt over his ability to produce the goods. And I think it's fair to say he quelled those doubts, wouldn't you, Jeej? Yeah, I think he, you could say that he left his doubters in his wake. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and pretty much everything else as well. Yeah. Because he, yeah. And for me, that was probably the highlight of the Olympics, maybe even the highlight of the year was watching him win that race. And for some reason, with all his showboating and, yeah, you know, showmanship and doing the, the pointing and everything like that, there's, there's something that's still fundamentally quite humble and quite, mm. you know, not unassuming about him, I think. It's, it's, it's a funny one. You know, a lot of the people who do sort of, I guess, yeah, prance around and, and talk themselves up like that come off as incredibly arrogant. Uh, the Miami, Miami hate for instance, the three guys from that team. But, yeah, whereas when Usain Bolt does it, it perhaps it's because it's 100% justified. The first guy on my uh, stock rising list is actually one of the Miami hate players in LeBron James. Um, his stock would have been quite low. Yeah, Billy's a little bit pained. He's wondering why I'm putting a guy who I don't generally like all that much on my list. But, hence, hence the hate. Hence the hate. But... I mean, LeBron's stock was very, very low. And funnily enough, it was probably at an all-time low game five of the Eastern Conference playoffs this year when uh, he bas- after Paul Pierce makes a huge shot in LeBron's face, turns around to him and says, that's the difference between you and me. I've got the balls to make this shot. Apparently, he said that. So it's well, like you've just dropped the World Cup, sort of. That type of might thing, have been yeah. Embellished a little and, bit. And... Um, <laughs> 
I mean, LeBron just went absolutely... I, I, I can't think of the right word to use, but he absolutely destroyed Boston the rest of that series. And he didn't stop until he won his first championship. There are a lot of doubts about whether he had the, I guess, the intestinal fortitude to... Uh, or testicular fortitude, based or on even what testicular that fortitude. Yeah, that, that too, <laughs> to, to step up a, and win. And um, he carried that on to the Olympics as well. When the US were in trouble, he was the guy who, who really stood up in the gold medal game and made sure that they won. So... His stock was his stock would have been reasonably low in relation to his ability, but he well and truly came out a winner during the middle of 2012. Miami stuttering a little bit at the moment, not really hitting their straps right now, but that's not really his fault. He's still playing as well as ever. I know how hard it must have been for you to include. Yeah, him that's right. Losses, I, well, so. I I just don't think that you know. And Sports Illustrated agreed with me saying that he was the sportsman of the year and. I don't think that they've got that wrong. Fair enough. Although, can I just ask, how many non-Americans were in the top ten? I didn't look at their top ten to know. I just know that that was... I don't know if they ranked the top ten, but he was their sportsman of the year, and I think that that's a fair a fair call. Fair enough. All right. Shall we plough ahead with the winners? Or Keep do we going, wanna... yeah. All Win right. in the end. Win in the end. Yeah. This guy had, after a very... A very, very long and, you know, distinguished career. I think Matthew Pavlich had arguably the best season of his career this season. Um, the fact that he didn't get into the All-Australian side is an absolute farce. Just, an, uh, yeah, it's the equivalent of Mark Lacroix not getting in um, three or four years ago now. Unbelievable. I don't know what it is, is about your, the just, best forwards in the league coming from WA not getting picked. But I don't he, know, was, he there, was brilliant this year. Is there a Hitler rant for that? I think that the, the most pressing... my Two images when it comes to Matthew Pavlich really, really um, come strong for me this year. The first one after the first Western Derby where he came out, basically took all of the blame for what had happened and said, I need to lead this team better put it all on his shoulders, and the way that he performed after that game throughout the Followed year was, was, was incredible. Mm. But the second one was his his qualifying final. There's, unfairly, there's been a rap on Pavlich that he doesn't play well in big games, which anybody who's ever watched a Western Derby mm. will tell you is total and utter well, bullshit. Well, Freo probably don't play that many big games. That's the problem. Well, they, they, they you know... Finals. The, there's this misconception, and, and it is a misconception, mm. that Rewalt is a better player than him because Rewalt has has been better in big games. The funny thing is, is, that, is that Jack or Nick, Nick Rewalt. The funny thing is, is that Pavlich's finals record is actually better than Nick Rewalt's record in terms of influence mm. on a game, and he won the qualifying final on one week. For oh his yeah, team. absolutely. Yep, and on a an, a guy who was. You know, yeah. in the mix for all, Austra- all Australian uh, defenders. One of the well. most, one of the guys who I think is probably one of the five most underrated players in the league in Tom Lonigan, who mm. is a, a tremendous one-on-one defender, yeah. won that game for himself. So, put it this way: if Lonigan got to play on Tomahawk, Tomahawk wouldn't have a touch. <laughs> mm. Well, was Tomahawk didn't Tomahawk yeah. didn't kick a goal in yeah. that game? So, yeah, and it showed up the yeah stupidity yeah. of the All Australian panel that yeah. that last final was Pavlich on one leg. Doing more than than Tomahawk could at well, full what, fitness. And... I mean, what do they say? Form is fleeting and class is permanent. Um, mm. I think that you know Pavlich. I mean, Pavlich has had a, you know, a, I I talked about Jack Callis being the the Matthew Pavlich of football, and 
you know, as the funny thing about Callus is Callus just seems to be getting better year after year yeah. as he's getting on. And now that they're settling Pavlich in the role that he should have always been playing, mm. we're seeing the same thing. And I think if you look at the season two, it was that game against Richmond at the MCG. That was the turning point yeah. for their season and probably mm. the turning point for Richmond's season as well. Mm. Coming into that game, Richmond were... There was so much hype about them all of a sudden. They were... Yeah, everyone was talking about Tigerland. And Frio just rocked up. I don't think they'd won at the MCG for the past five years or some ridiculous length of time like that. And on a on a wet, slippery, yeah, horrible day... Losing their first-choice Ruckman in the first yeah, five minutes of the and game. And having Stephen Hill severely injure his ankle a couple of minutes after that. So two of their, yeah, two of their absolute best players right there. Pavlich was just magnificent that day. He mm. single-handedly won that game for them. Mm. And I thought that was, the, that was the day that the penny dropped for Fremantle. That was the day that they realised, hey... We can actually, you know, achieve something with this team this year, and I reckon look out for them next year because they're going to be playing eleven games at home. Their home record this year was very poor. They lost a few that they should have won when they were sort of getting used to Lions game plan. Mm. So I reckon next year, now that they've got themselves sorted and that, they'll be very, very tough to beat over here, and they should be able to win a handful of away games as well to finish in the top four. Yeah, and to be oh, look, to be a top four team, you probably need 16 or 17 wins, which mm. if you if you if you can hold court at home, which is the thing that the West Coast Eagles have always been very very good at when they've been in and around the mark, even when they haven't been winning, is is that they they win their nine or 10 games at home and you know, if you do that, you've only got to win half your away games and you're there. Yeah. So and yeah, look the You'd be a silly person not to say that you that you don't think that they've got another level in their in mm. in their development this year. Yeah, they they're one of the few teams that have made the finals that I think can can actually still improve. Absolutely. So, and I think yeah, central to that will be Nat Fife, mm. who was had a horrible run with injuries this year. And as a as a side note, get on Nat Fife for the Brownlow next year because he polled. I think it was. 15 votes or thereabouts in nine games this season. So he's clearly a proven vote vote getter and Fremantle are going to win a lot more games next mm. season than they did this season. The only worry I have about Fife is his shoulders are made of paper mache. <laughs> Didn't they say but, the same thing about Judd? Mm, well, he had his surgeries at a younger age, mm. so they had more time to heal. But yes, they did say the same thing about yeah. Judd. No, just yeah. throwing that out there now. Okay. <laughs> my my second win is a guy whose stock might not necessarily be very, very high at this very point in time, but if we were going back 12 months ago, his stock value would have been zero. Uh, that's one Jeremy Lin. Now, um, Lin Sane in the membrane? Lin Sane in the membrane, <laughs> uh, which is the name of my fantasy basketball team, actually. Look. Twelve months ago, you wouldn't have known who Jeremy Lin was. Mm. Um, had a, you know, he's he had a year in in New York before he got injured, where he was just he just completely changed the culture of a team, which mm. in itself is a is an amazing thing to to take into account. Uh, and yeah, he became a, a national phenomenon and an international one even oh, yeah. there, there for a while, where Global. people who knew nothing about basketball actually knew who Jeremy Lin was. Case in point, yours truly. <laughs> yeah. And um, here he was, 
I mean, this time last year they weren't playing basketball, but he was hanging in the league by a thread. He's now at the point where he's he's a starting point guard in Houston and he's signed a three-year, $25 million contract. For somebody who is, you know, on the verge of earning zero, mm. you'd have to say that he's done pretty well, and pretty well for himself. And whilst he struggled a little bit in, in Houston at the start of this year, he's, he had a career night the other night. Yeah, I, I just think that basically stock having some value over stock value of zero means that you've got to throw him in this list. Long live insanity. Well, the next two guys I've got on my list, I'm going to throw both of them in together because I think they complement each other quite well. And they are the two captains who will be facing off against each other in the Ashes next year. It's Michael Clark and Alistair Cook. Mm. Funnily enough, when you look at the career stats for these guys, they're, they're remarkably similar. They've both mm. played the same number of tests. Cook has scored uh, a, a few hundred more runs. Um, and... Uh, I think it's at a better average, whereas Clark has scored a couple more centuries. But, yeah, across all their figures, they're remarkably similar. And, well, this year they were both similarly similarly brilliant, you'd have to say. Mm. Michael Clark in particular, as we mentioned in an earlier podcast, four double centuries this year. Well, what more? What more do you need to say about that? When you're Bradman doing, when you're do doing something that Bradman yeah. couldn't do, you've done something pretty special. Mm. I think that's the... Uh... Yep. And Alistair Cook, who not only has had a sensational year with the bat, scoring five centuries in his first five tests as captain, but taking over the captaincy itself after um, Levi Strauss left amidst a bit of a furor with with KP, um, and then taking them over to India for what's probably still the toughest tour for any English side, I'd say, is to go and beat India in India. Um, And... As we record this, they're up 2-1 and ahead on points uh, after the first two days of the fourth test. So not only has he led from the front with the bat, but he's also captained captained a a successful team in India, which, geez, when was the last English captain to do that? Mm -hmm. I don't know. That that says it up. Jardine? Yeah, (laughs) quite possibly. Mm. I'm going to go, okay, yeah... Taking taking your theme of following on from your previous pick, I'm uh, I'm gonna I'm throwing one rod in there from left field, and it's uh, it's your mate Sigh. Yeah, Sigh. That's Jer- my response. Jer- <laughs> and it, it's for the Jeremy Win theory as well. Is that now everybody pretty much knows who he is? Oh God. Um, he's gonna. He could very well be um, this year's. Lou Baker. So whilst his stock is high right now, I'm 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 putting it on the market and I'm selling, and I'm selling big. But um, it doesn't matter what happens in the future, mate. He's had yeah. almost 800 million views on YouTube. Yeah, that's it. He's got it made in the shade. You know, he's outdone the clip of the monkey scratching his own butt and sniffing it. That he, he's 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 taken taken YouTube by storm. Mm. So. Uh, so yeah, he's a. Uh, it's hard to. It would be hard to dispute him not being a winner of this year, whether you like it or not. So I'm gets, trying to think of a way that I can, and no, I can't. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Sai, Wapen Gangnam Style. Back to you. All right. So before there were any accusations of sexism levelled at me, I thought I'd better include at least at least one chick in my list, and who else but Australia's golden girl Sally Pearson from this year who's 
I guess, yeah, hysterical jumping around and <laughs> singing and dancing and crying and everything else that she was doing after she found out um, on the replay that she'd won the gold medal was probably the single most defining moment of the Games from an Australian perspective. Um, and particularly after, yeah, I guess after she had dominated all of her rivals throughout the, co- throughout the full course of the build-up, I think she only lost to one of them and that was in the very last event before the Olympics. It was it was really good to see her, yeah, maintain that form and take it all the way through to a gold medal. So yes, so piss and and I I win I mean the winner on the international stage as an Australian is you know, it's always something worth In athletics particularly. Yeah, in athletics in particular, yeah. In a in mm. a in a discipline that we've historically had Such no balls at yeah. No impact whatsoever. Mm. I'm going to cheat a little bit and go with the phrase of the Giants as a winner for uh, for 2012. How is that cheating? <laughs> well, the Giants itself, if you're a sporting team and you were called the Giants, this was a good year for you, mm. particularly if you're based in New York or you're based in San Francisco. So from one coast to the other, the Giants was dominating the USA. <laughs> yeah. So um, New York, of course, uh, winning the Super Bowl. This year, at the start of the year, and uh, Eli Manning proving that you you can't spell the word elite without E L I. No, for God's sake! How do you come up with this? Um, and um, San Francisco beating all of the odds, and I think beating elimination seven or eight times this year, and coming through and winning the World a countless Series. Countless number of times, too yeah. countless to count. I mean, the World Series, the the most number of games even possible. To be played in the world's in in the whole baseball playoff yeah. series this year, and yeah, San Francisco they were they were had their backs to the wall several times throughout the World Series. Mm. Well, not the World Series itself, but throughout no. the playoffs, and um, came up big throughout. And yeah, I think particularly after the the American League and National League pennants, mm. I mean the Tigers had swept the Yankees, which by the way was fucking awesome. Just yeah. Just yeah, as a, as a Red Sox fan, any time the Yankees get swept is awesome. Yeah, as a non-Yankees fan, any time yeah. they get swept, it's awesome. But yeah, I mean, they won that series 4-zip, whereas San Fran were engaged in the fight of their lives going all the way through to a final seventh game. So you would have thought, oh, you know, Detroit just sitting back, they had the chance to get their pitching roster lined up exactly as they wanted it, whereas San Fran were forced to, to yeah, I guess... Um, Sort of juggle their pitching staff. Well, that's around. right. Yeah, they certainly had to do a bit of patchwork stuff mm. because they wanted Matt Cain in Game Seven. So. Yeah. But um, yeah, in the end, I think Detroit became only the second team ever to sweep their pennant title and then get swept in the World Series. Mm. But uh, it was a great effort by by both of those teams who who were underdogs going throughout. You know, they they both only really just qualified. Mm. To, uh, to get through, they had to run the gauntlet, so they were both very worthy winners. Yeah. I think a lot of teams sometimes just gain so much confidence from that, because you look at yeah. St. Louis last year, they did mm. exactly the same thing. Well, yeah, I mean, you could argue Boston in 2004 was very much the same, mm. you, you know, coming back from a situation where you're 3-0 down and you win four four in a row mm. and then you go on and win four straight yeah. to, uh, to win the World Series. It's amazing how things can turn like that. And also the uh, San Fran pitcher, uh, Romo, 
produced what was probably one of the comedic sporting highlights of the year, and that was his photo bomb behind one of the um, heavy set <laughs> San Fran outfielders at one point. They just show his head coming up behind the left shoulder, and oh! <laughs> if you haven't seen it, yeah, try and track that down. We'll, maybe we'll post it on the site. But that was yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, also as I say, I mean the the thing I'd actually forgotten about was with the Giants as well is, is that they spent the entire year without their closer. Mm. Which is um, you yeah, winning winning a World Series, you generally have to have a high quality closer, and when you lose your one, who's arguably the best closer in the game these days, you've, Brian Wilson, you've done bloody well. Would we say Romo individually deserves to be on the list as well? Then, well, for his performances, yeah, mm. you, you and his photo bombing, yeah. it's all part of the rich yeah. tapestry of his year. Oh, uh, nobody photo bombs better than uh, Bosch Spice, Chris Bosch. There's a classic one of him. We might with, need to have a bomb off. <laughs> oh, there's a there's a classic one of him with TNT where LeBron James is being interviewed and he's the thing about Chris Bosch is he has that raptor like head. And this <laughs> raptor head just pops up in the middle is, of the screen. Is that screen. a thing? <laughs> yeah, well he used to play for the Raptors and he had this raptor like face, but his his head comes up face. His head comes up in the middle of the screen in the perfect position. It's what it's a fantastic photo bomb. I put on the on the blowpod tweet, I've I've put up the best gifts animated gifts of 2012, and that's one of the ones that's in there. It's uh, yeah, Shades of Jurassic Park, is it? Yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> it's a fantastic photo book. So, almost as good as the description: yeah. a raptor-like face. <laughs> yeah, write that one down. That's a keeper. Rounding out our uh, our top ten, then I'll. Uh, I'll finish it off with uh, John Longmire. Who, sore point. Yeah. Sore point. Will be a sore point, but um, the uh, John Longmire and the, the slingshot tactic in particular uh, has to be has to be a winner. It's carried a, a team of that was probably the fifth or sixth most talented team in the list. Mm. Uh, list, list beginning to end anyway. Um, his tactics carried them to a premiership. Yeah. Uh, it it ties in well to actually my first loser as well, which is the Hawthorne Football Club, who I believe were... I mean, before the season started, when everyone did their ladder predictions from 1 to 18, no one had Hawthorne outside their top two. Mm. Everyone was putting them in the grand final. And I think maybe 15 of the 17 people that they had um, surveyed Mm. uh, had them winning the flag. And we both had the winning the flag from memory as well. I, th- I think I had Collingwood beating them in the grand final. Mm. So instead, the team that beat Collingwood in the prelim final, <laughs> yeah. they did it instead. Um, but I think Hawthorne, now two years in a row, have just, yeah, they've come away with nothing. I mean, mm. the prelim final loss against Collingwood last year was particularly heartbreaking because no one really expected them to win that game. They they probably shouldn't have won that game based on, yeah, just based on talent out on the park. Mm. But they came within one straight kick of doing it. Um, they played that game tactically to the best of their ability mm. with the, the cattle that they had. And as the game played out, they should have won, yeah. Mm. I think they should have won that game. And then I think that really hurt them this year because after their um, last gasp escape against Adelaide in the prelim final, I think they celebrated that too hard. They almost were so relieved to have not gone out in the same manner as last year that they didn't um, maintain enough of a focus on the game that was still to come next week. Mm. And immediately after that game, I remember just thinking, 
I don't like the look of what's going on out there. I thought it was, yeah, there was just far too much celebration going on out there for a team who still had one more game left. Mm. And I think hopefully they're doing it step by step and next year they can go all the way and win it. But I think this year was a really, really big opportunity for them. Mm. And, yeah, they failed to take it. Just, just yes, we'll, we, we've jumped into the losers quickly. Uh, just an uh, honourable mention in my winners list, uh, Leo Messi. Mm, yeah. When you break a record, you're generally doing something pretty Although well. I hear now there's there's a dispute oh, coming from some completely obscure country that someone else actually has set a higher number of goals in a calendar year. So there may be some controversy over it. Oh, but, yeah, but... Yeah, but it was... It was so, yeah, it was... Oh. I'll have to track down the name of the country, but it was something like Equatorial Guinea or something like that. They came out and claimed that someone scored more goals. Yes, but someone in fourth division. Somewhere. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. Um, highest number of goals in a calendar year, a record that had stood, uh, I think, since the 70s or mm. for a considerable amount of time anyway. Yeah, and, and being a creative guy who who's generating a lot of those shots from outside the box versus mm. um, taking the record from... Is it Croyd, I think his name is. I'm trying mm. to remember his name. He's someone who was a traditional poacher yeah. around the goal face. So he, he'd come out and said, you know, that this guy's the best player he's ever seen. And mm. I think that, you know, that's that, that speaks volumes for his effort this year. Part of the reason why I haven't necessarily included him in my list... I ha- he's an honourable mention because his stock probably didn't really rise. That It's risen, there's no doubt, yeah. but it probably didn't really rise that mm. much. And to be honest, if it stays that high for another couple of seasons, yeah. we will be talking about him as the greatest of all time, alongside yeah. Pele. Mm. So, he's that good. So your, your, your first loser being the Hawthorne Football Club. Yep. My first loser is the Carlton Football Club. I think that... Uh, Probably, you know, if if I'm going to pinpoint where where the stock's fallen, it's the 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 coach and captain as of the start of 2012 in Brett Ratton and Chris Judd. Who, ironically enough, well, Ratton is now at Hawthorne. <laughs> ironically enough, yeah, Ratton is no longer the the coach of Carlton, and Chris Judd is no longer the captain of Carlton. Mm-hmm. But Carlton talked a big game at the end of 2011, like to tell everybody left, right and centre that they felt they were the fourth best team in the competition, despite the fact that they finished 10 points below the team that finished fourth and in the two games that they played against the team that finished fourth, they got beaten quite convincingly. Both in Victoria and in WA. Well, some would say that the game over here wasn't convincing in the final there. but It doesn't have to be when it's a knockout final. in, In reality... You know, Carlton were very. You what? I've watched that game again since, and Carlton were actually quite lucky to get it as close as they did. Let's put it this way: in reality, if you're one of the top four teams in the league, you're making a preliminary final. Yeah, that's right. So a big game was talked by Carlton at the start of the year, saying it was top four or bust. <laughs> well, and, uh, they were right. Yeah, well, they were right. <laughs> as it's turned out, they were right. Uh, the, I mean, what highlight do you pick for the Carlton year? Do you pick the uh, the chicken wing? Do you pick their uh, their efforts against the Gold Coast? Oh, yeah, that that has to be it for me. I mean, that was the straw that broke the camel's back on in in the end. Gold Coast beating them, but um, yeah, I, I so many so many things about Carlton that you don't know. I, well, 
you know, now now that Malthouse is there, they're, they're still trying to talk up a big game, but, you know, I'll believe it when I see it when it comes to Carlton. I think... What do you make of Malthouse, though? Because I think this is the sort of situation which may actually suit him. Yeah, that's that's a fair call. I'll, I've always considered Malthouse... I'm going to choose how I explain this very, very carefully... I've always considered Malthouse to be the Phil Jackson of coaches in the in the NBA in with regards to the AFL and the NBA. Phil Jackson's the most successful coach in the NBA, but there, I have the argument that a big part of the reason why Phil Jackson has been successful is is that he's inherited high end, high quality talent to work with. He's very very good at making a a very good team championship worthy. Yeah. Yep. Um, but his his track record in working with teams that aren't at that level isn't as good. Mm. So when when he had the Chicago Bulls teams without Michael Jordan, they were a middle of the road team. His his track record wasn't necessarily brilliant at developing talent. So I say, is he maybe a John Buchanan then? He knows how to get the absolute best out of a team that's already near the top. Yeah, but in well, terms yeah. of actually building from the ground up, he couldn't. I build. think that. You know, Malthouse's time at Collingwood, they, they had to go through a complete rebuild at one stage. But um, his record at the West Coast Eagles was... He, he did a great job getting them to that next level, mm. but he's he wasn't able to sustain that with regards to the talent that was coming through. I don't think that he's a great nurturer and developer too much of talent. He's very, very good with guys that are in the system mm-hmm. and have been in the system for a while who need that extra kick. Yeah. So... It is, I think that, I wouldn't say it's the perfect place for somebody like Malthouse to go. I would have thought that that's probably Hawthorne, funnily enough. But um, it's certainly an opportunity where, oh, look, I mean, if he can't get them to that next level, well, to into, into well, or in or around that level, level, it's just, no, never, yeah. it's just not going to happen. Mm. Yeah. He was, whether he's the right hire for them long term or not, I question. But he's certainly the the right hire going into 2013 with what they have right now. Mm, yeah, I, I still think that the question marks that you have about Carlton, which is who the hell's their key forward that's going to stand up in a big game? Well, according to Ratten, the fact that Jared Waite was out for pretty much the whole season was was what cost them their shot at the premiership this year. I don't think Jared Waite's a key forward. That's the mm. thing. I mean, but, I don't think I mean, geez, if you're if you you know, relying on Jared Waite would be like the West Coast Eagles relying on Sam Butler. The you know these guys who are historically it might be a little bit unfair. At least Waite's got sort of the the body type for a for a key. But the the point is, is that these guys are have a history of being injured. So if you're if you're depend, if you're expecting a guy whose track record is is that he plays probably twelve games a year, mm. yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it's not. Yeah, it's a long bow to draw. And yeah, look, I, I'm not sure that Carlton have really still addressed that particular issue. So it'll be, it will be very interesting to see uh, how they go this year. Yeah. I mean, I think they'll definitely improve. And I suspect they may do something similar to what Essendon did this year. Sort of leave the, leave, you know, get out of the box in a hurry, mm. but then potentially run out of steam towards the end of the season. Mm. I mean, the thing that worries me is, is that they are... 
when their midfield's firing, they look as good as anyone. But if you can neutralise their midfield, they're you know they're they're way for thin. And you could say that about yeah, so many teams when their midfield's firing. Yeah, no, so but good. I just think that their their ability to hold up defensively is mm. a concern, and their ability to I mean their ability to to generate a winning score a lot of the time is also a legitimate concern. I think the Malthouse will address the first, but the second will still be an issue for them. Mm. Are they, they, they just can't... They're not going to be a team that can afford to play shootout-type football. Mm. And against some of the better teams, that will hold them back. Yeah. I mean, they rely a lot on blokes like um, Betts and Garlett basically mm. having an on-night rather than yeah. an off-night. Mm. Righto. Moving along from one yeah, shambles of a team to another far, far worse example, and that is the New Zealand cricket team. Now, can, they've can obviously... I, can, can I throw another one in there so we can talk about them at the same time? Because I Go think the it. issues are exactly the same. The Indian cricket team. Oh, I don't know. Let's, let's deal with New Zealand first, though. Yeah. Because this time last year, they... They came to Australia for a, a two-test series. So, for starters, they'd been snubbed the, I guess, the basic privilege of a... The, the basic right, I should say, of a three-test series. Okay. They'd been shoehorned into two tests right at the start of the season. Um, and after getting thumped in the first test, where Vittori made 90 runs, but pretty much no one else offered up a whimper, everyone had already pencilled in the 2-0 result and had one eye on the next series. But they didn't... They didn't count on Doug Bracewell stepping up with probably, yeah, one of the best bowling performances of the last five or ten years, I would say, who took nine for 60 against us, um, yeah, at Hobart last year, and they drew the series one all. From that point onwards, they proceeded to then lose their next five tests in a row, which I believe is something they'd only done once before in their history. Um, And... Although they managed to bounce back with a, a, I guess, a face-saving victory against Sri Lanka in their most recent test, since then, well, if we're going to use the, the stock thing, their stock has plummeted. This is, yeah, this, it's the Great Depression plus the global financial crisis in terms of how far their stock has fallen. So much so that they've alienated their best player. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you talk about guys like Hadley and... Martin Crow and perhaps to a lesser extent Daniel Vittori um, as just the heart and soul of New Zealand cricket while they were in the side. Ross Taylor is very much the heart and soul of that team right now and unlike some of those other names, he doesn't have very much talent in terms of his support ensemble at all. So he is just far and away the most important player in their entire system, in their entire country. And essentially because he and McCullum had a lover's tiff over who should get the captaincy, McCullum has, well, as I understand it, he's made a power play and along with the, the coach and the head of the board and, and, yeah, all the powers that be, has seen Taylor ousted. Now, I think, yeah, I threw Martin, Martin Crowe's name out there Reading his assessment of it all on Crick Info a few days ago, scathing is is just the word that comes to mind. I don't think I've ever read such a scathing and critical article before. And it 
it, you know, it, it's just sad. The whole situation is very, very sad, I think, that they've now ostracised their best player and they're about to go over to South Africa and play a three-test series over there. They are going to get pants. They are going to get absolutely demolished over there. Mm. So you have to stop and say, well, what was the point of it? Mm. And Well, my reasons for choosing the Indian team are, are similar with regards to a lot of the off-the-field stuff and the question marks around who should be their captain. But if, you, if you, you're looking back on how they've performed throughout mm. 2012, you have to say that they're a big loser as well. They got mm. absolutely towed up by Australia, which yeah. forced two of their superstars into retirement and yeah. probably should have sent the third one as well and put some serious question marks over their captain. It's since come out that they were wanting to replace well, the captain. Yeah, I was going to say, it's an interesting comparison, isn't it? One yeah. team's got rid of the captain that who they needed to stay yeah. and the other team can't get rid of the captain who they need to go. Yeah, so, um, yeah, interesting situ- from that perspective. I think that... Um, the comment that you mentioned about Crick Info the other day where defeat is seen as a, a minor aberration in the... In the headlong pursuit of money. Of yeah. money. I think that that sums Indian cricket mm. up perfectly. That's, yeah. the, uh, that's the concern that, uh, that I have with them. And they, they're wanting to get back to the halcyon days. You, you have to, I mean... But that's the biggest problem. They're not. Mm. They want Dhoni and Tendulkar to stay in that side, whether they're scoring 100 runs in, in innings or zero. Yeah. Because that will bring in the fans, that will bring in the advertisers, and that will bring in the dollars. And at the end of the day, that is the only, only, only thing that the BCCI care about. Yeah, and you know, I think that that's a big part of the reason why I consider them to be a loser because they're not—they've they've taken their eyes off the prize, and their on-field performance is getting well. They're suffering as a result. We'll probably, of yeah, let's let's not put the mockers on it yet because no. <laughs> the fourth test is still currently yeah. But, I mean, I, I would consider a draw against England over there, mm. given how, how highly rated they seem to think they are, I would consider a draw with England a loss oh, for them. And given England's record in yeah, India as that's well. that's exactly right. Yeah. You have to consider that a loss. Yeah. But I think the biggest loser of all this year has to be Lance Armstrong. Loser's a very charitable word for it. <laughs> I can think of a few others that, yeah, might <laughs> incur the wrath of the Australian. Which, I mean... <laughs> You think of it. You think about what stock-wise, his mm. stock's worth nothing now, absolutely nothing. Um, mm. We're talking about a guy who started. He's. A, I think he's the uh, the only guy to ever lose seven Tour de France's in one season. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm going to paraphrase Nasser Hussain and just go with a fucking cheat, a fucking drugger, <laughs> mm. and a fucking liar. That too. Yeah. We could so go on and on and on, but unlike Bruce, we won't. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, let's let's be honest about this. Is anybody surprised that he was? I, I was not real. I wasn't really surprised to to hear this news. You want to know what I'm surprised about? Is how many people are still supporting him? Like, I know he's done, you know, an extraordinary an extraordinary amount of work um, for his charity and and those yeah. other sorts of causes. But when it comes down to it, the cold hard facts are that he was a sportsman and he cheated. Now, I don't think there is any other sportsman who has ever cheated who is, you know, now still viewed as favourably and, and yeah, as sympathetically as Lance Armstrong is. Mm. Just because the guy recovered from cancer does not mean it's okay for him to cheat. Hey, no arguments from me on that front. 
But uh, as we say, if you're looking at this in a pure clinical stock sense, you have to say that he would be the Sports Illustrated Loser of the Year. Yeah, he's cycled down a <laughs> cycled down a cliff. Yeah. So just for yeah. yeah. All right. Well, it's hard to sort of <laughs> it's hard to back up after that one. But Ricky Ponting, I'm going to throw his name out there now. Granted, he did score a double century at the start of the year, and up until even, you know, a few weeks ago, Mickey Arthur was saying we definitely want Ricky to be a part of the Ashes Tour next year. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it is it is always sad when a, a truly, truly great player like that just loses his way altogether. Mm. And unfortunately, that's what happened um, during the last series against South Africa. I mean, yeah, um, what else can you say? It's Yeah, I... I mean, it's it's interesting using. I mean, it's certainly not as high a profile um, athlete who's retired. Um, Brad Robbins, who plays with, who was playing with the Perth Wildcats, mm. retired during the week at age. I think he's only twenty seven or twenty eight. So it's a very young age for somebody to be retiring. But he's he's put his body through a hell of a lot. But I think the the thing that he said is is, you know, with regards to Ricky Ponting's the thing that, that sticks out in my mind. He said, I'd rather people say, Why did you leave so early than say you went on a year mm. too long? And he you know, he came out and said, The reason for me doing it is I can't prepare my body and my mind to go through this anymore. And I'm not doing my teammates any justice by playing on. Mm. Brad Robbins isn't a guy who's flashy by any strength of the imagination, but he's mm. he's the kind of guy that's the fabric of your your organisation and your club, yeah. in the way that he does things, he's extremely professional. In the way that he went about his job, he was yep. extremely professional, and he gave you absolutely everything yep. he had every time. Yep. So I think that you know, just the, the way that he said that, I, I just sit there and I hear that, and I'm saying, he's a guy who's made an interest, who's made a decision that's you know not putting him in a very good financial spot. Mm. But he's made the decision because it's in the best interest of the team, 100% yep. moving forward. And I think that the arguments, you know, we talked about Ted Dorker, we talked about the other Indian guys, you know, Dravid and Waxman. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd argue Saywag's nearly getting near that point as well. Oh, Gambier's stats yeah. recently. He hasn't scored a test century in three years yeah. now. They're, they're hanging in there too long to the detriment of the growth of the team. Mm. And I think that we're, we're probably going to get pantsed a little bit by the by the Poms in the Ashes coming up because Ponting's probably hung around the team 12 months too long. I think one of the biggest problems, though, was that there was no one at shield level forcing him out of the side. That's, I think that's if there a, had been... And, you know, that's a, that's a fair argument. Mm, but... And that's why Ponting felt compelled to bat on, because he would have looked around. And, I mean, he, he was the leading run scorer in shield cricket for, for a mm. lot of the early part of the season. So he would have looked around and seen, well, you know, maybe Kawaja, we've tried him once before. Maybe Hughes, we've tried him twice before. I don't think anyone would have been thinking maybe Rob Quiney, except the select. But he certainly wouldn't have been in a situation where he would have thought, if I step aside, someone else can come in and is primed to take over my spot Mm. and, um, yeah, I guess get that experience in before the ashes. Yeah, so I think it's it's fair enough. He's a a contentious one, but, yeah, I guess... It was just a very sad way for him to go out his last three tests. That's that's exactly right, is that... I mean, he he has ended up leaving on his own terms, but he was he jumped before he was yeah. pushed. There's no that's that's the reality of the situation. Mm. Turning it around the other way, my broader loser group is uh, the Los Angeles Lakers. <laughs> to to say that it's been a um, an absolute 
Yeah, it's been a, like the the year itself. The, I mean, look, their performance at a broader level hasn't been that bad relative to a few other teams. You could argue that the Charlotte Bobcats should be on this list because mm. they had the lowest winning percentage of all time. But nobody really expected much from the Charlotte Bobcats. <laughs> um, the Lakers, their, their season last year finished with them getting getting swept by the Oklahoma City Thunder in the, the Eastern Conference semifinals. And question marks were around about should the coach be around? Is Andrew Bynum the way of the future? What can we do moving forward? We have a problem at point guard. We need to address all these things. They went in, they put all their chips in the middle in the off-season. And, you know, they were highly favoured by a lot of people to, to be successful this year. And with good reason. They'd gone out and they'd, they'd got Steve Nash, who whilst he's in his late 30s, is still one of the best point guards going around. They brought in Dwight Howard, who was the best big man going around, admittedly coming off of some back surgery. They still had Kobe Bryant. They still had Pal Gasol. Everybody was turning around and saying, wow, these guys are stacked. They should win 60, 65 games this year. Didn't you throw them forward as a possible team to... I did. My, break the my, my concern was the coach, and my concern was injury. And funnily enough, they've both been justified. <laughs> Game three of the season, Steve Nash gets injured, still hasn't come back now as we're coming back towards the middle of the year, and there's no definite timeline on when he's coming back. Pal Gasol's had some knee tendonitis issues that's ruled him out of games. But I think probably the more the reason why I'm throwing the Lakers in is more is the absolute debacle that came around with regards to the coaching situation. Mm. They fired Mike Brown after a 1-4 and four start. Pulling the trigger on firing a guy after five games is... Well, it's you know it's revolutionary. Nobody's ever been fired in, in an NBA season that early. Wow! In the in the past, but that's not what the story was. The story was the whole issue around picking their next coach. They'd spoken to Phil Jackson in an effort to get him out of retirement, and to be honest, Phil Jackson would have been the perfect coach for the team that they have there. Now, the the Phil Jackson side of things it gets a little bit more complex and complicated because Phil Jackson's dating the owner's daughter. Oh, God. <laughs> and the owner's son is the guy who currently runs the team. And apparently there's a bit of friction between those two. It's to sound like a soap opera plot. Yeah. <laughs> a bit, it is a bit like that, yeah. The story goes that they met with Phil Jackson on, I think it was a Saturday or a Sunday. And they said, let us know whether you want to coach or not on the Monday morning. So we'll give you 24 hours. Call us on Monday morning. Take the weekend to decide. Kind of, yeah. yeah it's it's kind of a bit like that. He'd been... I mean, arguing about whether he wanted to make the decision to coach. And he'd finally decided that, yeah, he wanted the challenge to come back and coach. Now, as I say, this is where the story kind of veers off one way or the other. Twist. They've been also talking to Mike D'Antoni in the background at the same time about whether he was, um, whether he'd be interested in coaching it. And they offered him the job and he took it before they gave Phil Jackson a chance to respond. The story goes that they rang Phil Jackson 12.01 a.m. Monday morning and said, oh, by the way, you haven't got the job. We've hired Mike D'Antoni. Now, that would have been a fun phone call. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, More to the point, it would have been a fun Thanksgiving. Getting the family together. Could you imagine what that was like? But rumour has it that the reason why they went down the other path was that Phil Jackson was wanting too much. He was wanted to come back, he only wanted to coach certain games, didn't want to do particular road trips because he has a lot of back and knee problems. Jacksons are pretty demanding by their yeah, very that's nature. Right. Yeah. 
And um, the other comment was that, you know, he felt that since he'd won five championships for the Lakers already, that perhaps if he was coming back, he deserved a little bit of a share of the team. And it sounds like that, you know, that didn't go over too well with the uh, with the powers that be. But just a public relations nightmare, everybody coming out and saying, well, if they've spoken to Jackson and he was the mm. right guy for it, they... You know, they shouldn't have turned their back and they shouldn't have handled it in that particular way. The management is, yeah, so the management just making an absolute mess of that and the team itself hasn't responded to the change that well. I, I still think that they're... Uh, they, I'm not sure if they're even at 500 at the moment. They're really struggling. Actually Howard's, Howard's not been the player that they thought. Nash has obviously been injured. Kobe Bryant, in amongst all of this, has been playing the best basketball of his career, which is the probably the... The, both the, the saddest and the funniest part of all of this, depending on what side of the fence you sit with, Kobe. Mm. So it does actually sound quite similar to the Ross Taylor situation then, only it's the, the coach, the coach's role rather than the captain's. Yeah, so it's yeah very interesting in, in how it's played out, but you, there's no way in the world that you could consider them a, a winner. And, mm. you know, the arguments about where they're at and where they should be, their stocks forward. Soon to be turned into a three-part miniseries. Yeah. <laughs> I just wonder if it's an aberration. I, I would probably buy Lakers stock right now because it's it's probably not going to get much lower and it is going to bounce back and recover. So it's bottoming Pro- out. Yeah, that's right. Probably when Nash comes back, they'll, they'll, you'll start to see an improvement again. So, But as things stand right now, their stock's low. Maybe so buy. You're saying buy. <laughs> buy, yeah. I'd buy. Buy, buy, buy. I'd bu- their stock's low, but I'd buy. It's attractively priced. Let's yes, go with that one. That's right. Well, staying staying over on the Americas, my final loser for the year is another one quite close to my heart. There've been a couple of them already. We've had Hawthorne, um, the Minnesota Twins, who, well, what can, what can you can what can I, you can say I, about Minnesota this year? Can I extend on this with my? final one as well. Go I've got it. the uh, the ALEs powerhouses and powerhouses in inverted commas. In, I'm referring to the team that's close to my heart, the Boston Red Sox. And um, based on their playoff performance, the New York Yankees. Alright. Well, let's start at the bottom. We'll start, yeah, we'll start at the bottom. One, one of those teams made the playoffs. <laughs> yes. And two of those teams finished dead last in their divisions. I think they both finished with an identical record in the end too, didn't they? I think they both yeah. went 69-93 from memory. It's possible. Well, the 69 is quite appropriate because they definitely did get screwed over this season. Um, well, what can, what can I say about the Twins' this season? I mean, Joe Maurer still was in, in the top five American League for, for batting average. Other positives, uh, Liam Hendricks, the the young WA guy who actually went to high school with a, with a friend of mine, finally got his, his first win, and I think it was his uh, 17th start off the top of my head. It was one of the longest, yeah, all-time stretches at the start of a career without a win. But... Striving for mediocrity in times of excellence, the Minnesota Twins this year, mm. which you knew was probably going to happen at the start of the season, but they, yeah, mm. they set low expectations and they consistently failed to meet them this year. Whereas you'd argue with Boston, that's certainly not the case. And sixty-nine and ninety-three is an epic fail, and management viewed it that way. They made the rather controversial decision to hire Bobby Valentine in the first instance. And uh, he managed to get a whopping one season out of it. And mm. there's been so there was so much turmoil in the club rooms that apparently a big part of his his payout is that um, there was a rather significant amount of money that changed hands 
on the condition that he never speak about what happened behind the scenes during the particular year, which is never a good sign. Don't tell anyone where the bodies are buried. <laughs> that, that type of thing. You've had, you know, at one stage during the year, there was a apparent meeting between 17 of the players instigated by the clubhouse leaders in Dustin Pedroia and David Ortiz mm. with management on the view of getting rid of Valentine. So it's clearly not happy behind the scenes and on the field itself. There was hardly, hardly a highlight well, the I mean, entire year. At least with the Twins, you can say, you know, people saw it coming and I guess, yeah, yeah it's yeah. not so much a shock to the system. But for a team like Boston with such a proud history mm. um, and everything that, yeah, well, is associated right. with the Boston Red Sox. You know, and, it, and in order to, you know, in order to appease the masses, in essence, they've had to go out and bring back Terry Farrell, who, mm. very popular, um, very popular member of the Boston staff when Francona was there. He was their pitching coach who went up and took the Toronto job a couple of years ago and probably looking around now, having seen the Toronto, the massive trade between the Toronto... Blue Jays and the Miami, yeah, and the yeah, Miami, Miami Marlins. Sorry. He's wondering why the hell he yeah. <laughs> why <laughs> didn't they have done that before I left? Yeah. That's right. Damn it! So, but, uh, Maybe you know, he's I the mean, biggest loser of the year then, <laughs> missing out. To if, you, if, you'd all said, all that. if you'd said to me at the start, of the, I, I expected Boston to fall. But if you'd said to me before the start of the year that Boston would lose more games than than Baltimore and Toronto, I would have laughed at you. Mm. I certainly wouldn't have expected them to come dead last in their division, but yeah, that's exactly what happened. And I mean, the Yankees—it's—it's it's a bit harsh putting them on there when you consider that they won the most games during the regular <laughs> yeah. season. But the cold hard reality is, the Yankees' mantra is "We exist to win championships," and they couldn't get a hit throughout the playoffs. They were bloody lucky to survive the first round, given how poorly their bats were during that series. They all their bats went cold. And um, it got so bad that they their um, highest paid player now is Rodriguez. Yes. That's easy for you to say. Yeah, Aroid. Let's, let's go with that. Say, let's just go with Aroid. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that you know their most expensive player, Aroid. He got to sit Better. on the bench at the end. And the worst part for them is uh, he's now had hip surgery, and they're on the hook for him for a lazy 120 mil over five years. And at, th- at age, uh, I think he's 37 now. He's not getting any better. So it's- Time for the Zimmer frame, just about. Mm. And they've, you know, they've gone out and signed Kevin Euclid, who really struggled in Boston at the start of the year. He recovered a little bit after his trade to uh, to the White Sox, but I'm not I, sure that's a, a, a strong long-term move for them either. I'm going to argue with you on this one, though, because I think, I mean, for starters, as you say, they did win the most uh, regular season games of any team. But not only that, they won a very tightly contested um, first round of the playoffs against Oakland and made it all the way through to the American League pennant, pennant um, tie. But the, the so that, that puts them in the top yeah. four teams in the major league. That's, that's fair enough. And the point you make about them, they exist to win championships. Well, surely every team should exist to win championships, including but the Boston Red Sox. When you're, when you're number one in payroll, I think the expectations are a little bit different. And I, it's whilst all of those things are true, the concern is the way they lost those playoffs, barely getting a hit. I don't know. If I'm a Minnesota fan, I would have loved to have seen them get swept four nil and barely get a hit, yeah. rather than finishing last in their division. Well, yeah, the thing I think that the thing is, you know, the Yankees fans, they they have different expectations, but you know, for me, it's a hmm. win because hey, you know, anytime the Yankees fail. 
Oh, I love See, it. And, and therein, I think, lies the real motivation behind the, <laughs> the inclusion no on your list. Yeah, well, given their performance during the regular season, you know, not making the World Series was a fail for them. And I think given, given their payroll situation and that, you know, the institution of luxury tax coming into the MLB and where their current salary structures are at, their, their stock's dropping because of what they have on the books over the next few years, it's 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 going to uh, it's going to inhibit them a little bit. So that's a hard sell for for the Yankees. Don't buy. Don't. It's a it's a don't buy okay. recommendation. I would I would be looking at the yeah. I, I think that you know I'm not. I don't want to use the phrase they haven't embraced the money boy era, but they they still operate the way that Carlson used to operate. In that they feel that the team with the biggest checkbook wins, and um, it's it's the game's not played that way anymore. Mm. Well, so there it is. And uh, my uh, yeah, honourable, uh, dishonourable mention, I guess it is in my case to uh, the Scott sisters, Brad and Chris Scott. Just because, <laughs> just because. Well, the the reason why I, I consider them losers is, is that they have a loser mentality, and they like to uh, they like to look and blame anybody but themselves when there's a problem. Yep. Scott Sisters, your anguish sustains us. Here's hoping there's plenty more where that came I from would, in 2013. I would, I would be selling Brad, so- Brad Scott's stock. He had a, a plum draw this year with his team. His team had barely any injuries throughout the season, and they could only finish what could only be deemed an embarrassing eighth, given that mm. they, were, uh, they were absolutely wiped off the floor in the, in the finals. And I don't see Geelong... Bouncing back either. Well, Geelong think. lost to Fremantle at the MCG yeah. in a final. It's that simple. I do is yeah. I, I'm I'm selling Chris Scott, but I'm hard selling Brad mm. in North Melbourne. I think that if you were if you were asking me what the books were, I know he got a two year extension, but if you're asking me the book for first coach to get fired, I reckon Brad's a real chance. There it is. Well, after... he might only be saved by the fact that North Melbourne have no money. True, a valid point. So I guess. He might be hoping that the world does come to an end in a few days' time, if the minds are correct. Yeah. But if not, I think... If not, maybe what we should be doing is encouraging the minds to do what everybody else does when uh, when their calendar expires and go out and buy a new one. Yeah, Y2K mind star. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah whopper mind star, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, something like that, anyway. <laughs> so, look, yeah. assuming that... The world doesn't end. Um, what lies ahead for 2013? What's the one big thing you're looking forward to? Other than just still being here, obviously. Let's go with that. Let's go with that. I think that that's another podcast. Bold predictions for 2013. Well, it doesn't have to be bold. Well, predictions for 2013. I think that that's a, this is a good time to, to, to maybe... Yeah, because we won't waste our time doing that in case the world does end. Yeah. It'll just be... Yeah. Not the best way to spend our last few hours. So, uh, but yeah, so until next time. Later, skaters. Later, hosen.